Section 31 of The Epidemics of the Middle Ages by Eustace Hecke Translated by Benjamin Guy Babington This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sweating Sickness, Chapter 4, Fourth Visitation, 1528-1529, Part 3 Section 8, Terror The alarm which prevailed in Germany surpasses all description and bordered upon maniacal despair. As soon as the pestilence appeared on the continent, horrifying accounts of the unheard-of sufferings of those affected and the certainty of their death passed like wildfire from mouth to mouth. Men's minds were paralyzed with terror, and the imagination exaggerated the calamity which seemed to have come upon them like a last judgment. The English sweating sickness was the theme of discourse everywhere, and if anyone happened to be taken ill of fever, no matter of what kind, it was immediately converted into this demon, whose spectre form continually haunted the oppressed spirit. At the same time, the unfortunate delusion existed that whoever wished to escape death when seized with the English pestilence must perspire for twenty-four hours without intermission. So they put the patients, whether they had the sweating sickness or not, for who had calmness enough to distinguish it, instantly to bed, covered them with feather beds and furs, and whilst the stove was heated to the utmost, closed the doors and windows with the greatest care to prevent all access of cool air. In order, moreover, to prevent the sufferer, should he be somewhat impatient from throwing off his hot load, some persons in health likewise lay upon him and thus oppressed him to such a degree that he could neither stir hand nor foot, and finally, in this rehearsal of hell, being bathed in an agonizing sweat, gave up the ghost, when perhaps if his two officious relatives had manifested a little discretion, he might have been saved without difficulty. There dwelt a physician in Zwickau, we no longer know the name of this estimable man, who, full of zeal for the good of mankind, opposed this destructive folly. He went from house to house, and wherever he found a patient buried in a hot bed, dragged him out with his own hands, everywhere forbade that the sick should thus be tortured with heat, and saved by his decisive conduct many, who but for him must have been smothered like the rest. It often happened at this time that amidst a circle of friends, if the sweating sickness was only brought to mind by a single word, first one and then another was seized with a tormenting anguish, their blood curdled, and certain of their destruction, they quietly slunk away home, and there actually became a prey to death. This mortal fear is a heavy addition to the scourge of rapidly fatal epidemics, and is, properly speaking, an inflammatory disease of the mind, which in its proximate effects upon the spirits bears some resemblance to the nightmare. It confuses the understanding so as to render it incapable of estimating external circumstances according to their true relation to each other. It magnifies a gnat into a monster, a distant improbable danger into a horrible spectre which takes a firm hold of the imagination. All actions are perverted, and if during this state of distraction any other disease break out, the patient conceives that he is the devoted victim of the much-dreaded epidemic, 
like those unfortunate persons who, having been bitten by a harmless animal, nevertheless become the subjects of an imaginary hydrophobia. Thus, during the calamitous autumn of 1529, many may have been seized with only an imaginary sweating sickness, and under the towering heap of clothing on their loaded beds have met with their graves. Others among these brain-sick people, who had the good fortune to remain exempt from bodily ailments, many of them even boasting of their firmness, fell through the violent commotions in their nerves into a state of chronic hypochondriasis, which, under circumstances of this sort, is marked by shuddering and a feeling of uneasiness and dread at the bare mention of the original cause of terror, even when there is no longer any trace of its existence. A person thus disordered in his mind was recently seen to destroy himself on receiving false intelligence of the return of the late epidemic, thus betraying conduct even more dastardly than those cowardly soldiers who, when the cannon begins to roar, inflict on themselves slight wounds that they may avoid sharing the dangers of the battle. To have a full notion how men's minds were previously prepared for the state, we have but to think of the monstrous events which took place in Germany. Twelve years earlier, the gigantic work of the Reformation had been begun by the greatest German of that age, and with the divine power of the gospel, triumphantly carried through up to that period. The excitement was beyond all bounds. The new doctrine took root in towns and villages, but nevertheless the most mortal party hatred raged on all sides, and as usually happens in times of such impassioned commotion, selfishness was the animating spirit which ruled on both sides and seized the torch of faith in order for her unholy purposes to envelop the world in fire and flames. So early as the year 1521, during Luther's concealment within the walls of Wartburg, false prophets arose, and desired without the aid of their great master, who was the soul of that age, to complete the work with the spirit of which they were not imbued. They brought the wildest passions into action, but destitute of innate firmness, and incapable of curbing themselves, they became incendiaries and iconoclasts. Immediately upon this, the unhappy peasant war broke out, a consequence of the arbitrary conduct and oppression practiced from times of old, for which the abettors of Dr. X's sentiments would charge Luther himself as answerable, not perceiving that it was the excitement of the times and of the false prophets which had given occasion to the rebellion. Events occurred from the recollection of which human feeling still recoils. Never was the fair soil of Germany the scene of more atrocious cruelties, and after vengeance had played her insane part without opposition, the melancholy result was that hundreds of thousands of once peaceful and for the most part misled peasants fell by the sword of the lansquenets and of the executioner while their numerous survivors became a prey to the dearth which visited the country in the following years. The Battle of Frankenhausen of the 15th of May, 1525, and Münzer's subsequent execution closed this bloody scene. The consequences of such intestine commotions continued, however, to be felt long after, and considered apart from their highly prejudicial influence on the prosperity of the people, conduced not a little to break the spirit of mankind, 
signs of which the wise men of those times have plainly pointed out. Section 9. Moral Consequences The dejection was increased by the universally active spirit of persecution, with which it was still hoped to eradicate the new doctrine. Even whilst the English pestilence was raging, two Protestants were burnt at Cologne. In the same year faggots blazed at Mechlin, Ferdin, and Paris, by the flames of which the ancient faith was to be protected against the pestilence of freedom of thought. Sentences of death were also quite commonly pronounced against the Anabaptists in Protestant countries. The University of Leipzig pronounced the condemnation of this sort in the year 1529, and in Freistadt, eleven women were drowned after a nominal trial and sentence because they acknowledged that they were of this sect. Amidst these dissensions, and while the empire was in this helpless condition, came the fear of the barbarians of the south, who had already conquered Hungary under their Sultan Solomon, and whilst the English sweat was raging in the countries of the Danube, threatened to overwhelm Germany. It was a time of distress and lamentations, in which even the most undaunted could scarcely sustain their courage. But to the everlasting honor of the Germans, it must be acknowledged that they withstood this purifying fire with unsullied honor, and in a manner worthy of themselves. For their noble spirits were aroused to unheard-of exertions of energy, and whilst the pusillanimous gave themselves up to despair, they impressed on the gigantic work of their age the stamp of imperishable truth. The siege of Vienna began on the 22nd of September, after the English pestilence had broken out in this capital of Austria, yet nobody regarded this internal danger. The repeated attempts made by the Turks to storm the town were repulsed with great courage, and on the 15th of October Solomon raised the siege, after the sweating sickness had raged with as much violence among his troops as among the besieged. There is no accurate intelligence extant upon this subject, because the pestilence was less regarded here than elsewhere, in consequence of the great distress of the country from other causes. Yet the mortality in Austria, under such unfavorable circumstances, was doubtless more considerable than in the neighboring states. In the north of Germany another struggle was to be decided. The evangelical party wished to declare their faith before the empire and its ruler, to reveal the object of their efforts, and to defend the purity of their creed against danger and assault. For this purpose they prepared themselves with wise discretion, and in the measures taken by the reformers for the fortification of the great work, not the slightest trace was to be observed of the anxiety which at that time agitated the people. In the midst of a country whose inhabitants trembled at the new disease, and were perhaps already severely afflicted with it, did Luther, whilst at Marburg, sketch the first outlines of a profession of faith which, as filled up by Melanchthon, has become the foundation stone of the evangelical church. And in the following spring, during his stay at Coburg, he composed his sublime hymn, Eine feste Burg ist unser Gott, A strong fortress is our God. It could not but happen that in the religious struggles which took place in these years, especial importance would be attributed to the English pestilence. Epidemics readily appear to man, in the narrow circle of his view, as scourges of God, and indeed this representation of them 
has ever been the prevailing one in all religions. For it is easier to estimate the ever-existing sins of humanity than the grand commotions comprehending both mind and body of a terrestrial organism, which can only be perceived by a superior insight into things. And the mean selfishness of mankind and their delusions respecting their own qualities induce them to adopt the more easily the partial view that the Supreme Being allows pestilences to exist only to destroy their enemies of another faith. On this account, not only do most contemporary writers speak of the just wrath of God and of the chastisement thus prepared for the sins of the world, but the papal party took every possible pains to represent the English pestilence as a punishment for heresy and an evident warning against the triumphant doctrines of Luther. The cases in Hamburg, where the eruptions of the sweating sickness almost immediately followed the abolition of the monasteries, may certainly have obtained credit for such representations among the wavering and short-sighted. And in a hundred other towns also, the papists may have taken advantage of a similar occurrence of circumstances. For 1529 was a year when great and important questions were decided. At Lübeck, the monks in general preached that the English sweating fever was but a punishment which heaven inflicted on the Martinians, or so they called the followers of Luther, and the people were not undeceived until they saw with astonishment that Catholics also fell sick and died. They went, however, much further, and did not hesitate to employ even falsehood and cruel revenge to gain their ends. Thus it was asserted that the meeting of the reformers at Marburg on the 2nd of October had led to no union among them because a panic at the new disease had seized the heretics. Never did a dastardly fear of death enter the heart of Luther, who, when the plague broke out at Wittenberg in 1527, cheerfully and courageously remained at his post whilst all around him fled, and the high school was removed to Jena. Moreover, as we have seen, the sweating sickness never once came near Marburg, and the union of the two evangelical churches failed on totally different grounds. In Cologne the zealots were of opinion that they ought to endeavor to appease the visible wrath of God by the punishment of the heretics, and it was this sanguinary delusion, worthy of savage barbarians, which hastened the burning of Flischstadt and Klarenbach. To the completion of this picture of the times, Many other minor touches might be added, of which the following may be taken as an example. In the march of Brandenburg, the evangelical faith, notwithstanding great obstacles, spread every day more and more, and the Catholic priests soon found themselves deserted. Just as the sweating sickness broke out at Friedeberg in the new mark, a curate there delivered a sermon full of enthusiasm and passion and endeavored to convince his apostate congregation that God had invented a new plague in order to chastise the new heresy. The solemn procession, according to ancient usage and orthodox prescription, was to be held on the following day, and thus the congregation was to be led back into the bosom of the only true church. But behold, in the course of the night, the zealous curate died of some sudden disease and as mankind are ever ready to interpret even the thunders of the eternal according to their own wishes and narrow notions, the Protestants, it seems, did not fail in their turn to represent this event as a miracle. 
Section 10. The Physicians Under these circumstances, the faculty had a very difficult problem before them, for the very imperfect solution of which they cannot justly be reproached. A learned and active physician is certainly one of the noblest of the diversified forms of humanity, for he unites in himself the power arising from an insight into the works of nature with the exercise of a pure philanthropy inseparable from his office. Few men, however, of this ideal perfection lived in those times, and their mitigating influence over the violence of the epidemic, which was generally passed before they could closely examine their new enemy and give any deliberate advice, was doubtless but very inconsiderable. By so much the more busy were the ignorant and covetous, who from time immemorial the more numerous body in the profession have always injured it in its moral dignity. They attacked the disease with bold assertions, alarmed the people with inconsiderate representations, lauded the infallibility of their remedies, and were the promulgators of injurious prejudices. In the Netherlands, as we are assured by Tiangius, a physician whom we reckon among the learned and benevolent, a vast number of patients died of the effects produced by the distribution of pernicious pamphlets, with which the sweating sickness was to be combated by those ignorant interlopers, who many of them gave it out that they had been in England, boasting to the inhabitants of their experience and skill, and with their pills and their hellish electuaries, flitting about from place to place, especially where rich merchants were to be found, from whom, should they be restored, they obtained the promise of mines of gold. The like occurred in Germany, where at the commencement the sound sense of the people was overcome by this officiousness, and violent remedies were recommended as certain means of cure in a deluge of pamphlets, some of which were written by persons not in the profession. From this impure source, was derived the prescription of the compulsory perspiration for twenty-four hours, which in the districts of the Rhine was called the Netherlands Regimen. And it is unpardonable that the physicians either with blind pride disregard it, or were totally unacquainted with the prior experience of the English, which advocated discretion and the most appropriate line of treatment. This neglect, which was not compensated until thousands had already fallen, may possibly have arisen from the blamable silence of the English physicians, of whom, as if England had not yet been enlightened by the dawn of science, not an individual had written on the sweating sickness, or proposed a reasonable line of treatment since the year 1485. Between England and Germany there existed, nevertheless, a constant intercourse, and it is incredible that that mode of procedure which did not originate from a formal medical school, but from the sound sense of the people, should not have become earlier known on this side of the North Sea. We must not here overlook the habits and domestic manners of the Germans, for these favored not a little the baneful prejudice with regard to heat, for which we would not altogether make the physicians responsible. Housewives, even at that time, set far too much store by high beds, which annually received the feathers of the geese consumed at the table. The comforts of a warm bed were highly appreciated, and least of all were they disposed to deny them to the sick. Thus all inflammatory disorders were stimulated to much greater malignity, 
because such a bed either caused a dry heat, even to the extent of burning fever, or a useless debilitating perspiration. To this effect, the very extensive misuse of hot baths conduced, and no less so the custom of clothing much too warmly. Upon the whole, the notion was prevalent, as well with the people as with medical men, that diseases were to be combated by warmth and sudorifics. To new epidemics, however, the prevailing notions and customs are always applied. For the great mass of mankind, among whom may be included medical men, are entirely ruled by them, so that in this instance the sweating sickness fell upon a country in which its utmost malignity would be called forth. Yet after the first few days in which many unfortunate cases occurred, people became aware of the error they had committed. An advocate of the twenty-four hours sudation, who, though not a medical man, had lauded this practice in a pamphlet on the subject, died in Zwickau on the 5th of September, the victim of his own imprudence. A few days after him died an apothecary, likewise treated with the heated bed. Upon this the physicians immediately abandoned the practice, directed that their patients should be sweated only for five or six hours, and in a more moderate degree, and the estimable anonymous writer, to whom we have already alluded, thus seemed to meet with converts to his belief. In Hamburg also, men became convinced of the pernicious effects of feather beds, and gave the preference to coverings of blankets. For the English plan of treatment was presently known, and intelligent philanthropists who saw its curative powers made it public in all quarters through the medium of their correspondence. In Lübeck there lived at the time of this wedding sickness a learned Protestant Englishman, Dr. Anthony Barnes, who with great kindness made known everywhere the English treatment of the disease. He was, however, after the cessation of the pestilence, banished from the city, because he had petitioned the bigoted Catholic Senate to tolerate his Protestant brethren. Many were saved by him for it was the practice in the city also to stew to death those affected with the disease. In Stetten, the English treatment was promulgated in good time, and two travelling artisans who had come thither from Hamburg were of the greatest assistance to the inhabitants of this city by advising them to take the feathers out of their upper beds. They made known likewise how the sickness had been treated with success. They had seen cases themselves, and could therefore distinguish by their odor those who were suffering from the true sweating epidemic from those who were seized with fever arising from panic. They were constantly besieged by persons asking questions and seeking assistance. And when the disease was at its greatest height, the streets were quite illuminated at night by the lights of the relatives of the patients who were running in all directions in a state of distraction. The abhorrence of feather beds and the hot plan now followed so quickly the blind recommendation of the twenty-four hours sweat that by the middle of September, and in many places still earlier, more correct views were generally adopted, and some intelligent men, after the sad experience which had been gained, seized the opportunity of doing more good to the public than their noisy predecessors, who had by this time so abundantly supplied the churchyards with bodies. Among these literally and truly beneficent physicians may be reckoned Peter Wilde at Worms, who warned his countrymen against the Netherlands' practice, as also an anonymous person, 
the names of the best often remain unknown in times of confusion, who in popular language strenuously dissuaded the people against the use of feather beds. It also soon became a common saying, the sweating sickness will bear no medicine. Footnote. I here give the whole pamphlet, which only occupies five pages. It is entitled, The Remedy, Advice, Succor and Consolation Against the Dreadful and as Yet by Us Germans Unheard of, Speedy and Mortal Disease Called the English Sweating Sickness, From Which May Almighty God Mercifully Protect Us. Quote, when the disease and sweating sets in, ask what o'clock it is, and note it. If anyone be afflicted with this pestilence, may God protect us from it. It attacks him either with heat or with cold, and he will sweat violently. And this will take place all over his body. Some take the disease with sudden eructations, and do not sweat. And to those who do not sweat, a flower of mace with warm beer is given, and then they sweat. But if the pestilence and disease, from which may God preserve us, attack anyone after he has lain down in bed, he must be left there. But if he has a feather bed, though a thin one, over him, cut it open and take the feathers out, that it may consist only of the ticking or covering. If it be too thin, add a cool coverlet, and let the patient lie under that, covered up to the neck, and take care that the air do not touch or strike upon his breast, or under his arms, and the soles of his feet, and let him not toss about. Item. Two men should attend the patient, and prevent him from uncovering himself, and from going to sleep. Item. The same two men must watch the patient, and guard him against sleeping. If they neglect this, and do not so prevent him, and the patient sleep, he will lose his senses and go raving mad. In order, however, that he may be prevented from sleeping, take a little rose water, and by means of a sponge or a clean napkin, bathe his temples with it between the eyes and the ears, and by means of a sponge or napkin, apply pungent wine or beer vinegar to his nose, and talk constantly to him so that he fall not asleep. If he will drink, give him a thin beverage, which should be a little warm, and he ought not to be given more than two spoonfuls at a time. Item. On the patient's head should be placed a linen nightcap and a woolen one over it. Item. A warm towel should be taken, and with it the sweat wiped from the face. Item. Whoever is attacked in the daytime must be put to bed, if it be a man in his stockings and breeches, if a woman in her clothes, and let them be covered over with not more than two thin coverings, and above all things no feather bed, and then treat them as above written. Item. The disease attacks most people from great dread and from irregular living, from which a man should guard himself with great pains. Once for all, the patients must not have his own way. What he would have you do for him, that must not be done. Item. With respect to those whom it attacks in the night, and who lie naked, if they will not lie still, let them be sewn up in the sheets, and let the sheets be sewn to the bed, so that no air can come from beneath, and then cover them as before. Summa. 
Whoever can thus endure for twenty-four hours, by the blessing of God, will be cured of the sickness and get well. If a man has held out for twenty-four hours, let him be taken up and wrapped in a warm sheet lest he become cold, and throw something over his feet and bring him to the fire. And above all things, let him not go into the air for four days, and let him avoid much and cold drink. If he would sleep, provided twenty-four hours have passed, let him sleep freely, and may God preserve him. The Lord is Almighty over us. Amen. End quote. The place of publication is wanting. It was probably either Leipzig or Wittenberg. End of footnote. There is no ground for supposing that the influence of the faculty was much greater in the country where the sweating sickness originated than it was in Germany. For the number of learned physicians there were still fewer, and the knowledge of medicine not nearly so extended as it was in Italy, Germany, and France. The learned Linacre had already died in the year 1524. John Chamber, Edward Watton, and George Owen were the king's body physicians about the time of the fourth epidemic visitation of the sweating sickness. William Butts, of whom Shakespeare has made honorable mention, in all probability likewise held a similar office. These were certainly distinguished and worthy men, but posterity has gained nothing from them on the subject of the English sweating sickness. All these physicians were well-informed, zealous, and doubtless also cautious followers of the ancient Greek school of medicine, but their merits were of no advantage to the people, who, when they departed from the dictates of their own understanding, and did not content themselves with domestic remedies to which they had been accustomed, fell into the hands of a set of surgeons so rude and ignorant that they could only exist in a state of society which then prevailed. Footnote. Thomas Gale's description of this class of medical practitioners gives the best notion of their abilities. Quote, I remember, says he, when I was in the wars at Montreuil, 1544, in the time of that most famous prince, Henry VIII, there was a great rabblement there that took upon them to be surgeons. Some were sow-gilders, and some horse-gilders, with tinkers and cobblers. This noble sect did such great cures that they got themselves a perpetual name. For like as Thessalus's sect were called Thessalians, so was this noble rabblement for their notorious cures called dog-leeches. For in two dressings they did commonly make their cures whole and sound forever, so that they felt neither heat nor cold, nor no manner of pain after. But when the Duke of Norfolk, who was then general, understood how the people did die, and that of small wounds, he sent for me, and certain other surgeons, commanding us to make search how these men came to their death, whether it were by the grievousness of their wounds, or by the lack of knowledge of the surgeons. And we, according to our commandment, made search for all the camp, and found many of the same good fellows which took upon them the names of surgeons, not only the names, but the wages also. We, asking of them whether they were surgeons or no, they said they were. We demanded with whom they were brought up, and they with shameless faces would answer, either with one cunning master or another, which was dead. 
Then we demanded of them what chirurgery stuff they had to cure men withal, and they would show us a pot or a box which they had in a budget, wherein such trumpery as they did use to grease horses' heels withal, and laid upon scabbed horses' backs with vervil and such like. And others that were cobblers and tinkers, they used shoemaker's wax with the rust of old pants, and made therewithal a noble salve as they did term it. But in the end this worthy rabblement was committed to the marshalsea, and threatened by the duke's grace to be hanged for their worthy deeds, except they would declare the truth, what they were and of what occupations. And in the end they did confess, as I have declared to you before. End quote. In another place Gale says, I have myself in the time of King Henry the Eighth hoped to furnish out of London in one year, which served by sea and land, three score and twelve surgeons, which were good workmen and well able to serve, and all Englishmen. At this present day there are not thirty-four of all the whole company of Englishmen, and yet the most part of them be in noblemen's service. So that if we should have need, I do not know where to find twelve sufficient men. What do I say, sufficient men? Nay, I would there were ten amongst all the company, worthy to be called surgeons. End of footnote. End of section 31.